You are listening to Probation. We work hard and smart with the aim of keeping our Bay Area community safe. Each month, we will bring you what probation does and why it matters. And yes, you get to know the people behind probation. We are keeping it real in the Bay. And now to our show. Hello, everyone. My name is Fina Perez, Executive Program Coordinator, and welcome to Probation, a podcast about the people that work in the Bay Area, and specifically in the Alameda County Probation Department. Our goals for the podcast are to have honest and real conversations about all the aspects of probation. And so today, I'm really excited to come to you with a very special guest, and I'm really looking forward for you to get to know him. He is our new chief of probation, Brian Ford, our acting chief, who is taking over from our retiring chief, Marcus DeWall, who we wish a great retirement with his family. And so today, I want you to meet our new leader at probation. Welcome to the podcast, Chief. How are you doing, Fina? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for being here. So for you out there listening, I'm going to give you a brief professional bio of Chief at the end of the podcast, but for now, we're going to get right to it. So Chief, I think many of our staff want to get to know you a little better, and I'm sure they will in the coming weeks. I love how accessible you have been for staff, right? I've heard through the grapevine that you have been meeting with our staff, directors, supervisors, et cetera, and I just love that. I think that's fantastic. So tell me, is that part of your leadership style or what was the impetus for meeting with staff right away? Well, thank you for that question. To answer directly, yes, it is. It is a part of my leadership style. I have found that I can be most effective in my role when I have direct conversations and direct engagement with the folks that are are doing the work. I think it's important to hear from staff directly about their experiences to hear directly about how the decisions that sometime leadership makes impacts the work that they do. I think it's important to to know when life is lifing for people because pe- that happens and people bring stuff to work and to be mindful about that. And I think that the only way to get that information unfiltered, real, is to, to be out and about and on the floor and connecting with people and looking them in the eye and shaking their hands and hearing their stories and learning about their families. And I'm genuinely interested. And so that's another thing, too. It's easy to do when you genuinely have an interest in, in people. Oh, my goodness. That's so good. And, you know, I like that whole idea of life gets lifey because mm. I have this thing that life is 50-50. Right? Mm. You're going to get or maybe you know, 60, 40, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to get the good and the bad. And what really I think brings a lot of meaning to to the work that we do or just in general to our lives is are those connections. I applaud you for that. Thank you, Chief. Yeah, definitely. So, Chief, a fun and a bit of a personal question. Mm-hmm. If I asked your parents about probation, what it is that we do, how do you think your parents would describe it, what probation is or does? So I'll start with my dad like you said, personal story. So my parents had me when they were really, really young. My dad was 16. And I think my mom's 17. And, you know, at that age in my dad's life, he was, for lack of better terms, he was a troubled teen. He got involved with drugs and crime and all sorts of stuff. And so he spent a lot of time in juvenile hall and in juvenile camps. Unfortunately, by the time he was age 19, I was three years old, uh, he was murdered. 
just I'm so sorry. You know, thank you. Just from that lifestyle, right? And so, you know, me being three years old, I, I don't really remember him or his personality. And so I hear a lot of stories from family members about who he was and how he was. But I say all that to say that it it was always very um not interesting, kind of coincidental, right? That mm-hmm. I ended up in this work working at a probation camp, working at juvenile hall in the same county that my father was impacted by in those systems. And so if he were here today and I asked him what probation does, I'm sure he'd be able to tell me exactly what probation was all about. So that's him. My mother, I think my mother has a pretty good grasp on our system and and what we do, but from a different perspective, you know, my mom's not involved in those types of things, but she's very aware and conscious about the fact that a large part of our work is to help keep people out of the system and off of our caseloads and out of our um, juvenile halls and our facilities. And I've shared a lot of stories about how we as as an industry have moved in that direction, like a less punitive model as well as some of the things that I've been able to do in the various roles that I've had in terms of influencing and supporting the organization's uh, culture and direction and moving in in that way. Mm, You know, that that makes me think that it's kind of interesting. And I want to bring that up now because I remember one of my first interactions with you, you brought up this thought that, and I didn't know this, that probation does a lot of work to not get the youth into the system. Certainly. And that isn't talked about. Can you speak to that slightly? Yeah, I think it's not talked about enough. You know, more specifically, even here in Alameda County, I don't think folks are aware. I mean, and these are arbitrary numbers, but this is sort of the numbers that I use to give people a visual of uh, how I see our role. Specifically on the juvenile side, the way I look at it is, Probably 90% of our jobs, 90% of our core responsibility is prevention work. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. The 10% is the few kids that we have in our facilities and the few kids that we have on our caseloads. And that work to me is intervention work. Mm -hmm. And it's to help those kids spend the least amount of time engaging with our system to put them on a path to success, but really also to be focused on making sure that we don't replenish that bucket, right? And I think that we could certainly do a better job as an industry in telling that story and letting people know that is our core focus. We have funding from the state to do that. The state actually has a, it's called the Juvenile Justice Crime Prevention Act. There's a whole piece of legislation that was enacted with the goal of doing exactly that. And those funds come down from the state to probation departments to fulfill that mission. Wow, that's such a great answer. Thank Thank you. you. I know for me, that was kind of a big shock. I didn't know that. So Hmm. thank you for that. So now, Chief, what in your opinion is the most important personality trait or strength that someone would need to, to have to work in our industry? So on that thought of how we can impact the youth before they come in or impact the youth when they come in, what do you think that trait would be to to be successful in our jobs? You know, I, I have been asked this question before, like in other situations and scenarios. And so over the mm-hmm. years, it's given me some time to really think and reflect on it. And there are a lot of important qualities. But the one thing that I think surfaces to the top more than anything is integrity. Mm-hmm. And, and the primary reason why is because you know, our work is, is, is heart work. 
it's people work. You're dealing with people's lives. And a lot of the work that we do can be very autonomous. People work independently. You're going to people's homes. People are coming to talk to you. You have access to a lot of confidential information. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important that you you hold that work with care and and operate with the highest levels of integrity. And I remember a while ago when, you know, like I said, I had asked, asked this question before, you, know, you can look up the de- definition of integrity, and, and I'm sure most people know probably what that is in general, but there was a word in the definition that really got my attention, and it was uncorruptibility, right? It's like the the, the inability to be corrupted by, by anything, right? And so that that to me is the most important quality. Wow, that's so good. And, you know, I think that there's a difference between integrity and making mistakes. And I think that like for me personally, mm-hmm. I so agree with you on this, on this concept, because in fact, I've had the same handle for my emails and other areas as fee for integrity. So people mm-hmm. call my friends call me fee. And so my handle is fee for integrity because it's so important to me. Wow! Right. But at the same time, we're human. Mm-hmm. And we make those mistakes. But man, I am going to aim. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to hope. I'm going to aim mm. for that integrity. The and intentionality. If I follow, the intentionality. There you go. So good. So good. All right. What do people get wrong about you, Chief? What do you think that they don't understand about you? Mm. Uh, that's hard a, one. That's a, yeah, no, that is a hard one. I would probably say that, I'll answer it this way. I have moved pretty quickly up the ladder in my uh, career to, to land in this position. Most would say I'm fairly young in this role. And because of that, I think that people naturally assume that I have really high ambition mm-hmm. from a career standpoint. And to be honest with you, is and not that ambition is good or bad or indifferent. It's, ambition is ambition, right? But in my personal life, I feel like I've been ambitious. I've been I've been very intentional about, oh, I want to be a homeowner. I want to save X amount of dollars or whatever. I want to put my daughter through college. But from a career standpoint, I've never really set any intentional goals and said, I want to do that or be that or get there. I have always just been really passionate and driven and hardworking and have a really high work ethic that people, I think, confuse that or see that as ambition, like, well, he's chasing something. He's doing all this because he's trying to get to this next thing. And that's never really been my motivation. I think that because of my drive, my work ethic, that opportunities have have come to me. So more attract than chase. And I have just taken advantage of those opportunities. And I've also had really strong mentors and people who supported me that when they thought that I was either prepared, even though I didn't think so myself, I was always nudged or pushed. Do you need to put in for this promotion or you need to go interview for this opportunity? And more often than not, I was either unwilling or not feeling like I was prepared because I was never my intention or focus. But every time I would, you know, follow through with the process and here it is another offer. So I think that that was probably what people probably most misunderstand about me. Uh huh. That yeah. totally makes sense, too. And I think, especially, you know, are, are these assumptions, right? Mm. You're young. Okay, what did you do? Right? Yeah. 
or or what is it that you intend? And you know, the way that I like to see like the work that we bring into the world is kind of a value add, mm. right? What value are you adding, mm. right? And I think that when when people, and this is my own personal opinion, when people see that, you know, people of, of position or impact see that in our workforce that they're bringing that value add, then they're like, okay, let's bring them in. That is powerful. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot to be said with that. You know what you're saying about opportunities, about having those mentors. So I really appreciate that, Chief. Thank you for that answer. Now, you know, when we were planning the podcast, we thought, well, there needs to be a standing question. And so this is one of them. Mm-hmm. Instead of just anyone, I'm, this question that I'm going to ask you, mm-hmm. I'm going to give a twist to it. So from the stance of a, a mentor, who has been the most influential just in general? And they can be dead or alive. And, and I know this question, sometimes it's a difficult one. Mm-hmm. Or some people have answered this question in the past, you know, a family member or an ancestor or what have you. So who would that be that you would want to have that sit down with um, because you see them as someone influential? So I'll answer it a couple of ways. I think because um, you talked about mentor. And when I think about just the course of my life, going back to high school and through college and through the early parts of my career, along that journey, there have been principals and teachers and coaches and family members. And I mean, and these are people that have either come in and out of my life and Mm -hmm. at different points where, okay, so fast forward now, here I am and I may have either lost contact or they've passed away or whatever. And new people sort of just fall into place and and nudge me along. So I feel like I owe a great deal of gratitude and appreciation for Mm -hmm. a lot of people. You know, but when you said dead or alive, the person that came to mind was uh, an assistant principal. Her name was Dolores Craig. When I was in high school, the school I went to was Jefferson High School at that time, I don't know if this statistic was true, but this is what everybody around the school used to say. So I used to repeat it, that it was 96% Hispanic, 4% black, right? Mm -hmm. And Dolores Craig was an African-American assistant principal that had come to the school. And for whatever reason, she wrapped her arms around all the African-American males, just all Mm -hmm. the black boys. Mm -hmm. And I felt uh, seen by her. Loved by her, supported by her. I was made to feel smart and intelligent and that I could do anything. And to be honest with you, before she had presence on that campus, I don't know that I felt that way. I don't know that I knew that I was going to go to college. Mm-hmm. I, my goal was just to just finish high school. And so she put these thoughts in me and, in, in, you know, my peers that we were worth something and that we could do something. And so she has since passed away. But I, I think I owe that spark, that catalyst to her influence in my life. Oh, my goodness. I have this thing. That's so beautiful, Chief. I have this thing that these great teachers in our life, right, these great influencers in our life, I call them maesters. Maesters? From, what does from, that mean? From the Game of Thrones, like uh, master and teacher. Ah, got it. Okay. <laughs> Maester. So... What's her last name again? Craig. Dolores Craig. Ah, Maester Dolores Craig. Mm. Nice. Sounds good. Yeah. Now, along those lines of learning from the great, mm-hmm. what greatness would you impart to your past self? Like, what's one lesson your job has taught you that you think everyone should learn at some point in their life? And to be clear, you know, I really want you to think of talking to that younger you. So, well, you said job. 
And so that's what got my attention. All right. I think that what I have learned is passion has been the single most important characteristic that has fueled me. I think there has, you know, I've always heard most of my life, you know, you can do anything and, you know, dream big and follow your passion and all that stuff. Right. And so you, you want to do that and you think you want to do that, right. but I can certainly sit here and tell you as sure as I am a black man that I know without a shadow of a doubt that I am working in my purpose. I am absolutely mm-hmm. where I'm supposed to be doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And along my journey, I think that, that why that's why opportunities have come to me because I've mm-hmm. always been just very passionate and, and, and in love with what I was doing. And so for me, it goes back to this quote that says, like, if you if you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so from that perspective, I've had what most people would think is jobs. Right. But for me, they haven't been jobs. It's just been something that I've just fallen in love with helping people, connecting with people, um, mentoring people, influencing people and systems, problem solving, like all those things just drive me. They just drive me. Mm -hmm. And so to my younger self, right, if I had to give any advice is when you find something that you're passionate about, just stick to it, just do it. And then when you follow your passion, it will always lead you to a place that is the right place to be for your higher self. Nice. Nice. That's so good for your better self, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Now, moving from the past perspective mm-hmm. to and the current perspective, we talked a little bit about, you know, what where we're at today. Mm-hmm. Looking at a futuristic perspective, what do you think the world will look like in 50 years? So in 2074. Dang. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be around, <laughs> oh, but I wow. think many of us will be around, right? You never know. 2074. So obviously technology comes to my mind and artificial intelligence comes to mind. Chat and GPT. So chat G, like there's all the <laughs> stuff that comes to mind. But I think in reality, though, in order to put that question in perspective, I think you got to think back 50 years. Mm. You got to think back to 1974. And in, and in 1974, like that's 50 years, right? Yeah. 1974, could we have conceptualized that in 2024, we'd have Zoom. You'd be able to see somebody on a screen and talk to them, right? You'd have cell phones where you can pull up any piece of information and have access to the whole world. To the Googles. Yeah, right? <laughs> and, so, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't know that I'm able to conceptualize what will be possible 50 years from now. It's, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't know. Oh I don't goodness. know. We have to think that stuff up, right? Yeah, we have to think that <laughs> stuff up. But you know, to that point, though, I think that I, I heard Angela Davis. I was listening to a documentary, and she said that I'm going to say this quote wrong, so it's not even going to say that. Uh, I'm we'll, not even going we'll to try to look it up and put yeah, it in the show I, well, notes. I think the I think the context uh, or the point that she was trying to make is that the reality that we are experiencing today was as a result of the work and and, and ideas and thoughts that people did a hundred years ago. And so to that point, we have a responsibility and an obligation to have an impact and influence whatever the next 50 to 100 years will look like, even though we may not be there to experience it. Oh, my goodness. You know, that brings me to Stephen Covey. That's so good. Mm. I'm going to look it up. And for you listeners out there, we're going to put it in the show notes, the quote. So 
this brings me to Stephen Covey's work. Now, a lot of people know or have heard of the seven habits of highly effective people, but what some may not know is that he wrote a book about the eighth habit, what he called the eighth habit, which I think is what you are talking about, Chief, this responsibility that we hold. Basically, the central idea in Covey's eighth habit is that true greatness comes from unleashing human potential and from this concept of fostering a culture of contribution where individuals can make a meaningful difference in the work life that they that they do but also in their personal life as well and so my understanding of this eighth habit is that it emphasizes the importance of discovering one's unique talents and passions and using them to contribute to the world and uh, you know Covey I, he's one of the folks that I really follow and he really encouraged us to move from effectiveness to greatness by not only focusing on improving ourselves, but also on helping others to develop their full potential, their full impact. Wow. Thank you, Chief. Such a great conversation. And on that note, we're going to close the interview portion for our show. Thank you so much, Chief, for your valuable time and insight. It's great getting to know you a bit more. We're better for it. Thank you, Chief. Thank you, Fina, for having me. It was a pleasure. And for our listeners out there, I wanted to provide you with Chief Ford's biography. And so I'm going to go ahead and read his bio so that you have it and you get to know him a little bit more. Chief Ford is the acting chief probation officer of Alameda County. He's worked in government for 22 years, and in his previous capacity, he was responsible for overseeing the entirety of Alameda County Probation Department's Youth Operations Division. And in that capacity, he was the assistant chief probation officer. He served as deputy chief prior to becoming assistant chief and served as a consultant trainer in his entry into Alameda County. So we're very happy to have him here. Prior to moving to Alameda County, Chief Ford was a director for the Los Angeles County Probation Department, and he served as a consultant with the Cary Group. He has been an active member of the American Probation and Parole Association. APPA for 13 years. Chief Ford's primary departmental priorities are to fill critical department-wide vacancies, succession planning, and staff's professional development and competencies. And this is to ensure the best delivery of services to clients for the ultimate objective of community safety. He believes in the value of enhancing communication and transparency through the goal of fostering stronger relationships, trust, and credibility internally with our justice partners, labor unions, and the community. And with that, I will say goodbye. Have a great, great month, everyone. Take care. Thank you for listening to Probation. We want you to know that we care about our clients, our staff, and you. If you want to learn more about probation and join our amazing team, head on over to our website at probation.acgov.org.